I'm so excited you're here today. If we haven't met before, my name is Rob Jacobson, and I'm on decaf. I just want you to know. Uh, but I have just had uh, such a great time with God and uh, our church this week and understanding and seeing how God's word is still active and alive. His spirit still speaks. And, and maybe you're here and you forgot that, or maybe you're here and you've never experienced that. You know, I had a time where I was on sabbatical uh, last summer and I went up on the Superior hiking trail and I'm driving up with a shuttle driver and he says, so what do you do? And I'm like, I help people. And it was the most pathetic description of a pastor that I've ever heard. And I'm like, I'm pastor at church. And he's like, oh. And when we read what we're about to read, that's not an acceptable description, no matter what you do for your vocation. So Marsha sent me a helpful link. So now when people ask, and I think about it, because think about it. Like from one man, granted God with us, but from one man, a handful of followers in the most strongest, the most evil kingdom in the entire world comes this movement, this global, unstoppable movement of people called the Christian church. Just in the Catholic church alone, there's over 400,000 parishes and missions. When you add the, all the different versions of, of um, Protestants in there, it's well over a million Plus, just primary and secondary schools, the, the Catholic Church has built over 125,000 primary and secondary schools. The Catholic Church alone has built over 1,000 universities in the world, plus over almost 6,000 hospitals, almost uh, 8,700 orphanages, nearly 14,000 homes for the elderly and the handicapped. And this is crazy, but just shy of 75,000 places called dispensaries or leprosies or leper colonies or other institutions for the least and the last in our society. This is the Christian church. So now when people tell me what I do, I say, well, see, I'm part of this global enterprise and we have outlets in nearly every country of the world. We have built hospitals, universities, schools, we uh, start, we do justice work and relief work and reconciliation work, and we have education programs. Oh, let me tell you, we have recovery programs, and we have marriage programs and therapy programs, and we help people start micro enterprises, and, and basically, we partner with people from birth to death, and we major in the areas of cognitive and behavioral modification, <laughs> changing the way that people see and think and act. Huh? We call that the church. I, I mean, it's an unstoppable movement. I remember the first time my best church experience was when a lady in our church said, God, Rob, what is God doing in your life? How is he moving and working? And I'm like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. See, I'd never experienced that. So I have a friend that's at this uh, acquaintance. He's, he's in this ministry called City Vision. City Vision kind of uh, s- surveys and graphics the spiritual temperature of the area. Um, and, you know, this unstoppable church sure does look stoppable when you look at the top 10 religious groups in the Twin Cities as of January 2015. Granted, there are 986 non-denominational ind- independent churches But the very next category, there's over 300 witch covens. 
Then we've got the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, the Catholic Church, the Assemblies of God Church, the Lutheran Church. We have 132 Muslim mosques. And uh, number 10 is uh, Buddhist temples. And then I think, well, I don't know. Maybe the church isn't doing so good. So now I want to show you the um, top 20 religious groups in the Twin Cities by total number of average attendees. I know it's hard to read. Now, certainly out front, we've got the Catholics, 200 and almost 278,000, 100,000 people. But the next one, Muslim, non-denominational or independent, Evangelical Lutheran Church, Buddhists, Baptists, Jews, Hindus, Assemblies of God, Mormons, Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, witches, Evangelical Free Church at 13. Six of the 12, this is why I tell you this, six of the 12 top 10, or yeah, six of the top 12 religious groups that gather together in what we would call church are not. Jesus movements. This matters. But I think sometimes we just conceal the life-giving message of Jesus and the power. But what does it mean to be Christ-centered, spirit-filled, healthy missional places? Because those places, those change people's lives. They've changed mine. And I bet... For some of you, you can say where they've changed you. What does it mean, and where did it start? For that, we've got to look where the church is birthed, and that is Acts chapter 2. Now, maybe you've read some of Acts chapter 2 before. I'm giving you time to look at it and find it. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and someone will bring you one. It's pretty cool. But... um, Before we read Acts chapter 2, maybe you've read some of this. Maybe you're like, hey, are you going to talk about the Spirit? Because I've heard the Spirit does some weird things. Or, um, oh, are you going to tell us how we should love each other? And, you know, if we could just love each other more. Um, No, I think we have missed the power of what God is saying and doing. And we see it here in Acts. So I'm going to start in verse 5. Would you pray with me before I start? God, I just pray that your word would be clear and alive and active and moving to change us because you love us. Amen. It says, Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under God. And when they heard this sound, this sound is back in verse 2, this sound like a violent blowing wind that came from heaven and filled the whole house. And then when they saw the tongues of fire that were on the people, they came and gathered. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. This speaking in tongues was understandable. It was speaking in other languages, and they were utterly amazed and asked, aren't these speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? I mean, there are Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judah, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. This is basically the whole known world, by the way. This is why he's saying this. And we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? 
Some, however, made fun of them and said they had too much wine. So Peter stood up with the eleven, and he raised his voice and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and listen carefully to what I say. Because these people, they're not drunk, as some of you are supposing. It's only nine in the morning. No, this was what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. All people and sons and daughters will prophesy. And your young men and your old men will dream dreams and see visions. And even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days. And they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke, and the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, and before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Fellow Israelites, Peter says, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was accredited by God to you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This is only 50 days after Jesus died. Most of these people would have stayed in town. This man who you, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and to you, with, and not to you, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him on a cross. Catch that. We'll talk about that in a second. Freeing, um, But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. David said this about him. I saw the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices and my body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead and you will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the path of life, and you will fill me with the joy of your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet, catch that, and knew that God had promised him on an oath that he would one day place his descendants on his throne. So seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of the f- God, he received from God the promised Holy Spirit, and it has been poured out to what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I, make you, until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart, and they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what should we do? And Peter says, Repent and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, for all whom the Lord will call. And with many other words, he warned them. 
and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. This is God's word, and it's a great story. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing that describes what it means to be filled with the Spirit. These people were just hanging around in Jerusalem because they were, they were good religious people. Maybe you come to church. Maybe you're kind of an every week type of person. You come every week and you're like, yeah, I'm going to go to church. I'm going to do this. Maybe you're like, ah, I don't know, every other, every other week or maybe once a month. Maybe you're one of those people that's like, hmm, I really like Pentecost here. See, the Jews, they were faithful in their celebrations. They had three celebrations. They had seven, but they had three celebrations where they had to go to Jerusalem. They were only celebrated in Jerusalem. You had to make the trek. If you were within 20 miles and you were a Jewish male, it was your duty if you were really a Jew to go there. So a lot of times people came from way farther away than that. Luke is trying to tell us people came from great distances. And if it took two, three, four weeks to get there, well, if 50 days later they got to come back because Passover, Pentecost, and then this thing called Tabernacles are the three festivals, and one's in April, one's in June, and one's, you know, down in the fall. But 50 days later, and it takes me 25 days to get there, I go home, I turn around and go back. So a lot of times they just stayed there. But when they're staying, kind of like when we go to church, do we expect God to work and move and act? You know, like they had these three festivals. I think we have three festivals, Christmas, Easter, Mother's Day. These are the times when we go to church. Like, mom tells, let's go. You know, and Pentecost probably is the Mother's Day one, I, I'm just guessing. But I think if we want to be filled with the Spirit, and what it means to be filled with the Spirit, means that we are going to be people who see and hear God. Even if we have to practice, even if we don't get it at the beginning, we're just people who see and hear God. These are people who are seeing and hearing God. These are people who are expecting God's presence and power in their life. And, and maybe this year, like more than any other, because these people would have stayed, because they would have heard about maybe even seen, maybe even been in the crowd that shouted, crucify him, kill him. They would have brought all their pain and all their problems and all their challenges to Passover and to Pentecost and to the stuff in between. And I just wonder, like, did these people expect God to work? But then I look at my own life, and, and, you know, some days I do expect God to work. And other days I get through the whole day, and I'm like, oh, God, I totally didn't acknowledge you today. Or it didn't seem like I acknowledged you today. And maybe that's what you feel like. And let me tell you, it's very easy for us all to open our eyes and say, God, I, I, need, to, I need to see you today. Help me expect you in my life. Help me to expect your presence and your power. And, and when it happens, it's sort of like a rushing wind. When it happens, it's sort of like a tongue that's on fire. You can just, when you see a group of people that are filled with the Spirit, you always can't describe it. It's always, it's sometimes a little weird, but you're like, whoa, it's power, it's moving, it's active, it's love, it's amazing. Well, Pentecost is this, is this celebration of 
of when God gave the law to Moses. So these people would have been here celebrating this idea of God on the mountain, on Mount Sinai, with Moses, giving the Ten Commandments so the people had a way to follow him. Interesting, because when does Jesus send the Spirit? He sends the Spirit on Pentecost. Instead of God giving the law to Moses, Jesus gives the Spirit to his people. And this has never happened like this before. Never, ever, ever. See, in the past, God had come down on just a select individual, given them a mighty power for a deed. Samson kills a lion, or Joseph interprets dreams, or Moses, when he's just fed up with following the people and trying to listen to God and trying to get these rebellious people to follow him, where it originally first says, crooked generation, uh, Deuteronomy 32.5, where, where Moses is saying, God, I can't do it anymore. I just want to be done. And God says, I'm going to take some of the spirit that I've put on you, Moses, and I'm going to put it on the 70 elders. And they're going to prophesy. And they're going to speak. And he does. And the people are like, whoa, this is crazy. And some of them aren't even in the like orderly spot, the logical organized spot. They're doing it over here. And, and, and jo- uh, Joshua comes and yells at Moses, like, they're not doing it in the right way. And Moses is like, oh, wouldn't it be great if everybody could have the spirit? That's what we see here. When the wind comes in, this gigantic crowd gathers, and and catch what they see. It's flaming tongues over this crazy motley crew of Galileans. They're not like the Jewish Jews. They're not in Jerusalem. They came from Galilee. They came from a different region. And they are speaking and praising God for his wonderful works in ways they could understand. Maybe you've come to church and you've heard someone like me talk and you're like, I cannot understand this person. It's like they're speaking a foreign language. Sometimes I even say that. Sometimes it's like, Rob, a conversation with you is a little like playing Scrabble where the letters just fall on the table and we have to sort it out, sorry. But not here. Here, people are speaking and hearing in a way they can understand in their native language. And and think about what praise is because these are unique, unified individuals who are praising God. Praising God means that we are making God's name great. We're talking about who he is, and we're thanking him for what he's done. See, they're accused of being drunk, and later we find out that, that Paul tells us that in Ephesians 5 that we should not be drunk with wine, but we should be filled with the Spirit. So the wine and the Spirit have been made reference to before, and then we're going to make reference to later, but Peter doesn't attack that kind of going in, he does a thing that I'll get to in a second, but what Luke does is just awesome. He wants us to see this deeper level that's going on here, not just God giving the law to Moses and then Jesus giving the spirit to the people, but he wants to see, catch us to catch all of these different places that he mentions because God's people are scattered all over the known world. Remember when that happened? That happened way back. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, Genesis 3 tells the story of creation and then the story of rebellion when Adam and Eve rebelled against God's goodness, when they doubted God's goodness, and they took what wasn't theirs. Then their kids, Cain murders his brother out of envy and selfishness. Murder enters the picture. Then things get so bad and the killing gets so bad that God sends a flood. But even after the flood... We're told that the people are all gathered in one place. They all have a common language. And what do they do? They start building a tower 
to make their name great. And God scatters them and confuses their languages. Do you see what Luke is trying to do here? Luke is trying to tell us that not only is Jesus giving the spirit to the people, but when these people get the spirit, the curses of sin in the world are being reversed. This is what God is doing through his people. This is what he starts through the resurrection. This is what you and I are invited to. The people aren't scattered anymore. Now they're gathered. They're not building a tower and a name to themselves. They are speaking in ways that are just seeming like they're on fire and they're making God's name great. You want to expect God to work in your life? You want to feel his presence and his power? You've got to ask to make God's name great. To not make it about you, me not make it about me, but for us to make it about him. And so, that's when we get to this realization that truth brings transformation, if you will. So, so spirit-filled people are people who speak prophetic truths into present-day problems. This way they're going to make God's name great is they're going to speak prophetic truths into present-day problems. They're not going to spout their own principles or their own really good advice. They're going to speak the prophetic truths. That's what Peter does. That's why he starts with Joel. That's why he connects with this idea of what they knew. These would have been Jews that would have practiced Torah. They would have been reading the the Psalms and the prophets and the Pentateuch. And so Peter would have just said, and if you don't know any of those words, it's not a big deal. But now it is. Peter brings us back to this prophet, Joel 2. And Joel's telling a story and a prophecy of revival, of when the people become alive with God. And this is, he says, this is what God promised long ago. You guys know this. We prayed this for hundreds of years, that sons and daughters will prophesy what you're seeing now. It was predicted then. But people who knew Joel's prophecy would have known that before we can have revival, we need restoration. We need our hearts to be made right with God. And we know the only way we can have restoration is if we have God's rescue. So Peter moves from Joel, where he talks about the prophecy of revival, and he says, hey, Jesus of Nazareth, which they know, the Nazarene, they've been talked about, he's been being talked about for, for all these many days. Peter says, he's accredited by God. He's got credibility. His credibility came from his miracles and his wonders and his signs. And Peter says, which you yourselves have seen, which you know. They would have bought that. But it wasn't to his credit. It was God's power in him. And if they would have said, the next logical question is, if he's chosen by God, if he's anointed by God, if he's accredited by God, then why did he die? Because God's Messiah is not supposed to die. Their, their key would be, if God's Messiah dies, God's plan failed. And that's why Peter wants us to know the cross was always a part of God's plan. See, you and I, we, we, we can't be filled with the Spirit when we start to wonder and are tempted to think that, that the cross was like God's backup plan. 
that he's like, oh my gosh, uh, uh, emergency, emergency, we got to, oh, here, we'll do this. This will work, this will work. Oh, yeah, 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 now we can do our stuff. No. No, God knew from long ago. And that's why Peter brings us to the prophecies of old. That's why he brings up David, and he talks about David not decaying, or at least not David decaying, but the Messiah not decaying, about the Messiah rising, about Isaiah and the suffering servant. It says that he speaks for many, many, many longer times. But, But Luke, this guy who writes Acts, wants to give us the gist, wants to give us the intent of what was going on here and why this was happening. It was because God knew all along that this was his plan. When we're filled with the Spirit, we don't have to start wondering like, oh, I guess, you know, maybe the Spirit will just give me movement. No, Peter's, Peter's with God, thought about what he's going to say and how he's going to say it. The cross was also something that, if you take that idea of Peter knew what he was going to say and with God knew how he was going to say it, and you just transfer that to this like, God's scale, God knew what needed to happen, and God knew why it needed to happen. And God goes through the story. Yes, we have an impact on it, but God knew. And that's why, don't miss this, he's got to rescue us, but Peter also says, lawless men killed Jesus. Yes, the cross was part of God's plan, but we played a part in it. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, maybe your translation says wicked men, but it's lawless workers or lawless men, you killed Jesus. Think about that. Lawless people, because what are they celebrating at Pentecost? God giving the law, right? These are lawless people. These are people who have no regard for what God gives them. When God gives us something because he's good, James tells us it's a gift. They have no regard for this gift. And this gift of the Spirit's even better. And some of us, some of us have no regard for the gift of the Spirit. And I'm not trying to make you feel guilty because I've had it too. Like, oh, that's great. Like an old Buick, you know? Barbara, you know, if you want to come back, bring your connection card, he'll give you a Buick. Maybe the Buicks of today, but they've had to do a whole PR thing I mean, I think we're thinking of the 80s Buicks or something. Like big couches that my grandma drove around. No offense, grandma. That's, I think, what some of us think about the Spirit. Oh, he comforts us. He makes us cushy. gives it a comfortable, safe, comfortable ride. No. No, we see adventure of the Spirit. We see this value and power in the Spirit. This is what God does. And lawless people, people who have no regard for it, they're the ones who go, mm, no, yeah. End of story. And so Paul, or Peter, Luke tells us, goes through Jesus' death to the grave, to the empty tomb, to the resurrection. Because the resurrection is the key. Peter physically is saying, Jesus' heart stopped, his heart became dead, and through resurrection, his heart became alive. Because you know what? Because you and I, when we're not with Jesus... Our heart is dead. And God says to Adam and Eve, if you eat of this tree, of this fruit, you will die. He wasn't, he wasn't like, oh, just kidding. Now you get to live. 
When we're separated from God, that's spiritual death. Who are we? We are people that are separated from God. He loves us. He created us. He created us out of his goodness. But at our core, we're separated from God until we say yes to Jesus. We are just like the people that Moses said, first called crooked. We, we want to rebel against God. We are stubborn towards God's good things. But the resurrection is the key. The resurrection is what takes us from, from dead to alive. It brings our heart that's always of, of stone, the prophets call it. Ezekiel says it. Um, that, that he will give, Ezekiel 36 says that God will give us a new heart and put a new spirit in us and he'll remove our heart of stone and give us one of flesh. What he's saying is that this, this heart of stone that always pushes against the things of God is going to be soft to the things of God. When you are filled with the Spirit, you will be soft with the things of God so that when you speak prophetic truths to present-day problems, you don't do it in a way that like puts up your little milk carton or milk crate and says, you're sinners, you guys suck, sorry, and you need a turn. He emphatically and lovingly explains God's goodness, how this was part of God's plan, and how Jesus has risen in that plan. The resurrection is what tells us who Jesus is, not his death. That's what he's trying to say. And so he is challenging, Peter is challenging his listeners at their heart. And a mentor who said, like, when I was trying to learn how to prepare messages so many years ago, he's like, just don't prepare on paper. Because if you prepare on paper, then you'll reach paper. But if you prepare in the heart, you'll reach people's hearts. And it's a lot harder to prepare in the heart because I have to sit all week and say, okay, God, what are you saying to me through this? Well, sometimes you're too concerned about being safe and careful, not accused of being drunk, not in that way, but take a risk. Maybe that's for you today, that you are concerned with being careful. You can't be filled with the Spirit if your first concern is safety or careful. But if your concern is following God's Spirit, then Joel says that we'll prophesy. When Peter talks about David, he says he doesn't call him a king. This is, this is the ideal king. If you've read the scriptures before, you'll see that David is the ideal prototype king. He is the one that is called the man after God's own art. They don't call him a king. They call him a prophet. And they call him a prophet because he speaks God's truths, because he's not so concerned about, oh, what law do I need to follow right now? God's law is written in his heart. Jeremiah says it, one of the other prophets. He says, I will make a covenant with the people of Israel, and I will put my law in their minds, and I will write my law on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. These are the people who are filled with the Spirit. They're not as concerned about exactly, exactly God's law. They've put God's law in their minds that they might not sin against God, but their goal is to follow God consistent with his word, not like, oh, I follow the Spirit, I don't read the Bible. No, 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 no. If you follow the Spirit and are filled with the Spirit, you have to have God's word in you. And these people say, what do we need to do? Like, these prophetic truths to present-day problems, they demand a response from us. And they're for everyone. They're not just for the people who are close. That whole far-off category, Ephesians 2 tells us that those who are far-off are referring to the Gentiles, the people who thought, no way could that person come to God. 
Maybe you have people that are in the no way category. Well, if you speak prophetic truths to present day problems, then there is no no way category. There's only what could God do. And they say, Peter, what do we need to do? Like, are we, do we need to be put on trial for killing God's son? And they sincerely, sincerely meant it. And so what does Peter do when they figured out we killed the author of life? He gives them an invitation to life. There are people around us that desperately need hope, that desperately need resurrection, and we need to be people who personally follow Jesus and we put him first in our life. That's what spirit-filled people do. They follow Jesus personally and they put him first in their life. We don't have a second-hand relationship with God. We have a first-person encounter with God. We've done, as a church, as, as the church, we've done a great job of, of putting Jesus' power and life in this little package. Not living it, breathing it, acting, believing, seeing it, lived out in a way that changes us and then offer for others to be changed. This is what Peter is inviting us to. This is what it means to repent, believe, and be filled with the Spirit. It means I know that by myself, I am separated from God, and I'm on a crash course to a double black diamond if you're a skier. And the only way that I can stop is I can fall, but the force of my slide will send me over the edge. I literally need a ski patrol to come in front of me and tackle me before I fall over, and that's what Jesus does. He rescues us. Let us never forget that Jesus rescues us. And let me say it this way. Let us never forget that Jesus rescues you. Jesus rescues me because when I make it personal, I can live it out. I can follow. It's attractive. People see how it changes you and they want to be part of it. I mean, these people want to be a part of it. When they finally understood, they said, oh yeah, let's do it. And they're not just saying, I check a box. No, this is like, I repent means I turn around. I don't do the things I used to do. I believe that God has made this for me, and then I'm filled with the Spirit. Filled with the Spirit is this idea of baptism, this idea of being immersed in and initiate and surrounding, and so we're invited to participate in what this is, and this is called the church people. That, that global movement, that enterprise with outlets everywhere, that's what we're invited to, and, and Paul or Peter tells us what was happening, or Luke tells us what was happening, and it was basically one word. They were devoted. They were devoted to God's word. They were devoted to teaching. They were devoted to fellowship. They were devoted to the breaking of bread. They were devoted to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe and wonder, and the signs that were performed by the apostles because they were devoted. They were single-minded in purpose. They were believing with love. They had unity and uniqueness. They were in common. They sold property. They gave sacrificially. They blessed others. They met together in the temple in religious places in church and they met together in homes and they had personal relationships and they praised God. And it says they enjoyed the favor of the people. Don't you think that would be an attractive place? Don't you think you'd come back to a place that you saw devoted people praising God and worshiping? Yeah, maybe it went five minutes longer than it was supposed to, but... They saw life change. 
Luke tells us that 3,000 people were added to the church that day. It's not about being a big church, but it's about making big changes, having big transformation, and believing in big things. As the worship team comes up, can I just invite you to this week read Acts 2, 40-47 and see the picture of a diverse group of people devoted to Jesus. Like putting their lives around, prioritizing Jesus' teaching and his fellowship and his prayer and food and sacrificial giving in ways that change your life. Do people look at your schedule and say, man, she's devoted. Do people look at the way that you pray and read scripture and go, oh my gosh, you are so devoted. Not that it's for the praise of people, but to see the Spirit fill us, live in us, and through us. Maybe you need to repent. Repent to God's word. Repent to prayer. Repent to sharing your life with food and love. Give. Maybe you need to repent, but no. When you repent, you believe and are filled with God's spirit and life change can happen. Let's pray. God, I just praise you for the story of Pentecost. Forgive us when we Um, remember what everybody else has said about it, and God, I'm not saying that I said it right, but help us to see your word through the intent of the past and the present and what Jesus has done, always putting you in the center of it, keeping your spirit and your word consistent with each other. God, help us to be devoted to you because we're filled with you, because we realize what you've done for us. Holy Spirit, speak to us about ways that we need to repent and we need to believe and we need to be filled with your spirit and help us to be people that act and do it by your power, for your glory and your great name. Amen.